Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 180. Well, just ahead, Warner Brothers Music Group, Warner Music Group, and its digital evolution. And Abercrombie and Fitch sees the upside of people returning to the office, getting ready for those big holiday parties, and the international strategy crucial to insurance giant Aflac's success. Our guest, Aflac COO Fred Crawford. Great interview, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And I hope you're listening to every Drill Down podcast. That's easier if you click the subscribe button and follow us or let other people know how much you like the show by leaving a review on iTunes. All of it helps a little bit to make sure you and everyone else can catch the latest Drill Down. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent at work that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome back to the Drill Down. We're going to explain some business stories, the stocks, the other moving. Help me explain all that. Executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, thanks for helping out. Hey, Corey. They are uh, moving a lot. Yeah, there's a uh, volatility's back a little bit uh, with a lot of these names, not just in the world of crypto. Crypto is always volatile. It's just only volatile in one direction right now, it seems. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to start with something uh, a little. Well, I should wait for you to ask me. Yeah, let me say my line, please. Corey, you know people quote that line to me? <laughs> I'll, I'll run into random uh, friends in the street <laughs> or somebody. Hey, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Love it. They think that's how you uh, start a conversation with me. But it doesn't work unless I say it. So, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> it turns out there are a few. I'd like to start with uh, Warner Music Group. Warner Music Group at trades under WMG and shares have risen 18% in the past month. And if you but if you look at a 12-month chart, WMG shares have fallen 28% in a year. So this is a fascinating business that I hadn't looked at in quite a while. Uh, it went private, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, and uh, was spun out uh, uh, from a private equity group uh, in 2020. And the music industry is very different. Isaac, as you, as, as you know, I, I think we've talked about this. I started, I, I, mm -hmm. I worked in the music industry very briefly. Um, yeah. One of my many majors at NYU back in the day was music business. And I went to work for Motown Records for a year. Found out that was not to my liking. Why not? But what, what didn't you like One about way it? to look at the business dream job. of music over the course of the last 50, 60 years is the transition between media types and the different music companies' ability or inability to manage that. Or for that matter, the musical artist's inability to manage that. So when things went from, I don't know, from, from 78s to record album length, some artists like Miles Davis said, hey, I could do something with longer songs. And Kind of Blue became an amazing uh, thing because they could record things differently. Um, when, when music went from... You know, vinyl to eight tracks and, and, and vinyl to cassettes and cassettes to CDs and, and then CDs to, to, to Napster stealing stuff. All of these big changes really screwed up a lot of record industry. They still call it record industry or recorded music industry companies. 
Um, Warner Brothers seems to have figured a lot of this out and um, uh, reported results for the third quarter that showed that they're really starting to figure out what, what the world looks like right now, how people are listening to music right now. And so the company that brings us artists like Ed Sheeran and Bruno Mars and Cardi B and Dua Lipa um, had a, a, a fantastic year with uh, um, with revenues of, of nearly $5 billion uh, just in the uh, for the entire fiscal year. They, they had a year end in September, which is what they just reported. The music publishing business, that is, that is getting paid for the rights to songs. So songwriters like 21 Pilots, Lizzo, Katy Perry, that was about a billion dollars in revenue. Um, so about 85% of revenues for so the sale of music in whatever format it might be sold, and 16% for the sale of the, of the rights uh, to the, the, the songs themselves. Now the company's getting a new CEO, so this is the outgoing, uh, uh, the, the victory lap for the last CEO. The new CEO, uh, Ron Kinsel, Rob, Rob Kinsel, I said, is coming from Alphabet, where he's a chief business officer. Before that, he was at Netflix. So the guy from Netflix and YouTube is coming to run Warner Brothers. Why? Because that's how we listen to music. We listen to it online. Yeah. We listen to, we listen to it in social media apps. And uh, it was really interesting to look at some of the, the, um, the, the 10K, which they just filed. Uh, just a fascinating look at the industry and how it works. So live streaming of music, big deal. Lots of people listening to live streaming. Um, short form video apps, right? So TikTok, Instagram stories, Facebook, um, uh, uh, 68% of those, according to um, a study that they quote in their 10K, 68% of short form video apps use music videos or music dependent videos. That is new videos with music behind them that Warner Brothers is getting paid for. Sorry, Warner Music is getting paid for. I'm so old school. I remember when it was Warner Brothers even before it was Time Warner. Um, and wow. so these guys see a lot of growth, not just in Spotify and music listens, not just Apple Music or Amazon Music, but they're seeing a lot of growth in people using their music behind the videos they make on TikTok and Instagram or even in virtual concerts that people are watching on Fortnite or, or Minecraft or Roblox. I mean, they're really on top of this stuff. They're even talking about Web3 in their conference call. But the big driver in the most recent quarter for Warner Music was a new deal. They won't say which deal, but it looks like it's a deal with TikTok. And they're getting so much more revenues from TikTok um, that they're just, uh, they saw some great growth in that industry. And with that customer, which customer it was, they wouldn't say for sure. Like I said, it looks like TikTok and a new deal with TikTok. Here is Chief Financial Officer Eric Levin talking about that success. So in tw fiscal 21, we had a series of deals that we did or renewed, and generally we do deals in two to three year cycles. So mm -hmm. uh, 23, we would expect to be the start of that process. Um, broadly, that category consists of more and more licenses with growing consumption. We see that category as a growing category um, for the long, long term to come. Um, each deal and each contract will be negotiated individually. Some of the companies within that category have been highly successful and scaled and others um, have had more challenges. So each deal will meet where that partner is. Um, but it is our objective deal by deal to get the full and appropriate value of music and we'll be negotiating for each deal assertively to make sure each deal is valued properly. The other thing to note 
is um, that these deals, as we've talked about in the past, are generally fixed fee deals. Is our objective over time to move these deals um, to or towards being variable? Um, we know that's not going to all happen in one re renegotiation across the board, but we'll be working towards that end. Um, and obviously, as deals move variable, the growth curve would be smoother and in line with monetization and consumption growth, whereas with fixed-fee deals, it's more of a stair step. Um, and you try to capture the expected growth in the platform within a fixed fee over that period of time. So we'll be working each negotiation and seeing what we can accomplish there. So maybe they're seeing some ability to do something variable, uh, tracking every single tune and how it's played is going to be tricky. But technologically, I suppose it's probably easier than it's ever been. But these guys are obviously looking for ways um, to benefit from the way people actually are consuming music and get paid for it. And it seems to be working. Yeah, it seems very smart. And I mean, when's the last time you bought a physical recording of music? Like a CD? I guess. Yeah, like CD an A-track, you mean? Vinyl. Yeah, I guess in your case, A-track, yeah. In my case, A-track to go with yeah. my, <laughs> my GTO. Um, I, I have not bought any physical music in a long time. Yeah. Um, I don't even have the capacity to play that physical music, I think. Yeah. Um, the, well, interestingly, um, these guys actually said that their, their vinyl business, uh, it was up 26% in 2020, is up 51% in 2021, fiscal year 2021. Um, so their vinyl business is picking up as well. And they are seeing some, you know, some important growth in the sale of physical music, particularly in China, they cited in the conference call. Um, but uh, just, I, I would have thought it was an absolutely fascinating a conference call and a 10K to read and um, conference call to listen to and uh, indeed some good music to listen to as well. Yeah, I, I, if they do, if this, if this uh, rumored deal is with TikTok, I can, t I, that would totally make sense to me. I mean, I find, I, I find a lot of new interesting sounds and beats and artists through TikTok. You're so hip. Oh, very hip. You and the kids. Have you, Corey, have you seen which, the uh, Have you seen the squirrel in my pants TikToks? I have not. Oh, you got to get down with that the squirrel in my pants. That's a thing. Corey, what is your next drill down? Abercrombie and Fitch. Abercrombie and Fitch trades under A and F, and shares have risen twenty seven percent a month. Uh, but it's been a tough year for A and F. Um, shares dropping almost fifty three percent over the past twelve months. For Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, I thought uh, I was in Ohio over the weekend for a funeral because why wouldn't I get to go to another funeral? Um, and I thought, well, I should do something from Ohio uh, on the show this week. But a really interesting thing going on in the world of retail, and it is uh, observable in both this stock, Abercrombie and Fitch, and the next uh, stock or the next company that we're going to discuss. But just within the Abercrombie and Fitch results, you can see um, a bifurcation of what's happening in retail and a real sign of the times. Uh, where we are right here at the end of November in 2022. So uh, net sales of short of a billion dollars, call it $880 million. Um, it's down 3% year over year, but on a constant currency basis, flat. Okay, so sales are flat, uh, but sales of the Abercrombie brand were up 10%, but the Hollister brand, they were down 12%. So Abercrombie is a little bit fancier. Hollister is part of Abercrombie? Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a more kind of surfwear t-shirts. It's cheaper. Got it. 
So Hollister down, Abercrombie up. Um, and it, it is this dumbbell of retail that we're seeing uh, perhaps in a lot of companies, certainly something I'm looking for, which is to say that high end uh, is, is doing well, low end is doing well, but the middle maybe not so good. And, and Hollister might be in that unfortunate middle or is it that the low end isn't working? So we're going to keep an eye out for that trend with lots of the companies we see reporting. When we see retailers reporting, we see results from retail companies, I think it's useful to be mindful of whether or not they do exist at the high end or the low end. Because what we heard from Abercrombie Management and what you're about to hear from CEO Fran Horowitz is at the high end, they've got some room to do things. Customers have got money to spend and they're spending it. And uh, indeed that uh, they get a little more margin there as well. And maybe in the low end, you've got customers who are really working hard to find deals to take care of their, their families and, and fill up some, some carts there. But maybe uh, right in the middle where Hollister is, not working so well. Here's CEO Fran Horowitz from Abercrombie & Fitch. We were pleased to see the sequential improvement from Q2 to Q3. In fact, we were pleased to see it in both of our brands. Um, you know, if you do take a step back, the Hollister customer, as we've talked about, you know, recently, has definitely been more impacted by inflation than our Abercrombie consumer seems to be at the moment. But we are controlling what we can control. The leadership changes, you know, came towards the end of Q2. The inventory changes, you know, we got on those as soon as we started to see some opportunities hit us. You know, it's back to school kicked off at the end of um, the last quarter. It's exciting to see our top business is very strong. We chased into those. You know, our theory there when we talked to the consumer is that perhaps they can't buy, you know, a couple of pairs of jeans this year, but they want their outfits to look new, so they're putting new tops with those. Um, we are determined to continue to see these improvements in the quarters to come, and the team is working very hard on adjusting you know, inventories and really leaning into categories that are working. So inventory also a really big deal. Remember a year ago, all these companies were really wrestling with um, inventory problems, particularly a shutdown of, of uh, factories in, um, in Vietnam a year ago was causing a lot of trouble for retailers, and retailers not having enough stuff to sell for uh, consumers had deep pockets because of the COVID shutdowns where they hadn't been spending money and had been getting stimulus checks. Maybe there's an overcorrection for inventory. I don't know. What they talked about elsewhere in this conference call was making sure they had the stuff that their customers wanted, unlike last year. We'll see how this rolls out. But again, interesting that the high end of Abercrombie doing well, the lower, at least middle end of Hollister not doing so well. I remember the last time we talked about Abercrombie, it's been a while, but they were really struggling at that moment which would have been in the last year. And yeah. I still, I, I, they, uh, their resurgence actually surprises me because I, I don't know, maybe it's my vantage here in LA, but I don't see a lot of people going into Abercrombie as a trend as it used to be. I remember the good old days of Abercrombie, um, but maybe those are coming back a little bit. Maybe. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree trades under DLTR and shares have climbed 17% the past six months and are higher by 16% in a year. So Dollar Tree from uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, it's a operator of discount re real retail stores. Boy, I can't speak today. Discount retail stores. Everything a dollar? And, uh, they've got two brands. They've got about 8,000 stores of each, uh, 8,061 Dollar Tree stores, 8,016 family dollar stores. Now, one might look at these from the outside as similar kinds of businesses, indeed similar names, 
throw in Dollar General, an entirely different company, then they all look like it sounded like. Uh, but uh, within this company, within Dollar Tree, the Dollar Tree and family dollar business is seen as very different. And uh, not unlike the company we just discussed with Abercrombie, having Abercrombie at the high end and Hollister at the middle or low end, these guys have also got Dollar Tree at the high end of discount and Family Dollar at the low end of discount. So comp store sales for the quarter that just ended uh, at the end of October um, were up 9%. Family Dollar uh, same-store sales up 4%. So again, the sort of higher end doing a little bit better. Um, and uh, profits for the company up 23%. Now, the executive chairman of the company, Rip, Rick Dreeling, is making a lot of changes, bringing in a lot of new management. And yeah, just to confuse things, he came from Dollar General. But we'll forget Dollar General now. So he came into Dollar Tree and making a lot of changes. Uh, and what he's doing is he's raising prices for the higher end Dollar Tree and cutting prices for the lower end family dollar. So uh, in particular, a $1.25 price point for a lot of the stuff um, at Dollar Tree um, is a, a price increase that seems to be working for them. Um, family dollar, uh, lower income consumers who look for, you know, really working hard to look for bargains and just to get by. Uh, they did see, while it was only, you know, 4% sales growth, it's the first time I've seen any sales growth in three years. Um, and they're managing that dumbbell of high end versus low end, even though one could argue all of this is on the lower and the discount end. But here is that executive chairman, Rich Treeling. How we go to market, how we face the customer between the two banners are totally different. One is basic consumable retailing, the family dollar side. One is consistent everyday low price, one price point. The leverage, the beauty of the combination is all of the backside things that the consumer doesn't experience. The accounting, the HR, the legal. And that's where all those synergies exist. Even on the supply chain, how we deliver to the stores, how we look at the models. So all of those synergies are still there, but what we're doing a much different, what I would think not only different, but better job is this, with how we're facing the consumer, realizing that one is more emotional driven. And then again, one is more concerned with everyday value. So similarities on the back end, very different experience on the front end. And uh, for this company, it looks like at least for now, it's working to manage both those businesses. Yes. Yeah, very interesting to see how they can segment out the lower income or lower price point consumer. Yeah. Maybe even the lowest. Yeah. Um, interesting business. All right. Coming up next, a really interesting business. Another one, uh, Aflac. Um, it's not the company you might think it is, even though you're bombarded by the ads. Indeed, you might be this Thanksgiving weekend with all the sports on TV and lots of Affleck ads on the air. But COO Fred Crawford explains how this really interesting business works and how important their business is in Japan, how that makes the U.S. business work even better. Right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. 
Right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm joined right now by the AFLAC Chief Operating Officer, Fred Crawford. Fred, glad to have you. Where are you joining us from? Not from Japan. Uh, Columbus, Georgia. Columbus, Georgia, about 90 miles south of Atlanta. And uh, this Which is, is somewhat different where, than Japan. Uh, it is. It is. And, and this <laughs> is actually where uh, this is actually where AFLAC was founded. Uh, so in South Georgia. So I'm at the headquarters. And yet a huge chunk of the AFLAC business is in Japan. Yeah, many people do not realize that uh, when they think of Aflac and, of course, the iconic duck. But uh, back in the 1970s, one of the three brothers that founded Aflac, uh, one of the three Amos brothers, was traveling to Japan and was there for the Global Expo in Tokyo. And while there, made an interesting observation that we all know and become used to, and that is that the Japanese tend to wear masks uh, and are very health conscious given the density of the population in Tokyo. And that sparked an idea in his head that our supplemental health products would do well there. And so many, many years later, uh, we have a policy in one in four households in Japan, about 25 million policyholders. and. Uh, and actually larger than our U.S. presence. And the duck is just as popular in Japan as it is in the U.S. And that's about 75% of your revenues. That's right. That's right. And essentially, uh, the healthcare system, as you may know, but many of your viewers may not know, but we're in the supplemental health insurance business. And what's meant by supplemental is our policies cover what major medical, major healthcare policies don't cover. So co-pays and out-of-pocket costs and uh, deductibles, things that we're all used to, can get to be a lot of money for people depending on the, the nature of your medical needs. The reason why it's so popular in Japan is Japan has a national healthcare system where it's very easy to understand. 30 cents or let's say 30 yen out of every 100 yen you spend on any type of healthcare need is out of your pocket. So you can only imagine being a citizen in Japan and growing up in Japan where you know whether it's a, you know, multi-million yen surgical uh, need or a few thousand yen uh, traditional routine doctor visit, 30% of that cost is going to be out of your pocket. And so getting supplemental coverage beyond the national healthcare system is essential and therefore a very popular product. And yet for an underwriting perspective, it sounds like the, the observation that your founder had was that you've got a very health conscious population, which means they're conscious about the potential cost, and yet they take care of themselves. So the cost to the insurer might not be as great as it might be in a less healthy place. That's absolutely right. I mean, what, what you know, being a, a financial practitioner is that the Japanese have always been known for their level of conservatism and they're a saving society. Even today with negative interest rates, the Japanese tend to rather park their money with their bank and effectively pay their bank to keep their money than move it into something of a risk nature. And for the same reason, that's the way insurance is viewed. Uh, insurance is not viewed necessarily as coverage for when you get ill. Rather, it's viewed as I need to have this because the number one threat to my savings is my health and I better have coverage for that. So, you know, in the U.S., you have to educate folks on the nature yeah. of risk management and managing that risk. In Japan, they come to the table with an appreciation for risk management, and it makes insurance so popular. 
It's interesting. I remember reading a lot about that. The the American psychology around healthcare and insurance was such a difficult thing to get people to think that um, uh, the Affordable Care Act was a good idea because of the the short term sacrifices, even for the long term benefit. You could. It was hard to get Americans to think about it. Uh, yeah. Now, of course, you know you you you'd have to fight like hell to get Americans to give up their their Social Security or their Medicare or their Affordable Care uh, Act um, benefits. Yeah, like it or not, we're all becoming um, armchair actuaries in some degree where we're <laughs> we're uh, we're becoming more uh, more acquainted with the idea of longevity risk or living you know, living as long as we hope we live. But what does that mean in terms of retirement savings and the uh, what actuaries would call the tail risk or the uncertainty of risk or severe risk related to your health. And so um, and so there is much more of an appreciation. But, you know, Japan's got 119 million people, you know, a third of the size of the U.S., but they're the second largest insurance market on the globe. And it's because they have really, truly a good natural appreciation for risk. And I think that's one of our challenges in the U.S. is. Uh, while we our pop our products are popular here and do well, of course, in the U.S., we have 13 million policyholders in the U.S. We still have to go through the exercise of helping to educate people what it really might cost them, even with their major medical insurance, if they were to be injured or hospitalized or fall into more critical illnesses such as cancer, stroke, heart disease, and unfortunately, it's so complicated in the U.S that um, most of us just go to the hospital, the bill the happens, that we're covered, right. and, we, yeah, and we don't really know what our out-of-pocket is going to be. We submit all the bills and hope for the best in terms of reimbursement from our medical provider, our major medical provider. And what we now need to do is really sit down with people and make sure they understand it's really truly a gap. You're talking about 50% of employees in the U.S., live paycheck to paycheck and have less than $1,000 saved for an emergency. And so they definitely need insurance for these types of, you know, uncertain uh, events. But you've got to go through that discussion and education to really connect those dots. Uh, and it's largely because of the complexity of our healthcare uh, dynamics and healthcare financing. I've got to think that the, uh, I, I hate having macroeconomic conversations on this podcast. I really want to focus on individual businesses. Sure. But it does seem to me that you guys are set up with, there are a lot of sort of macro trends that are set up, and even by micro trends, maybe set up to um, uh, help you guys. So advertising, a lot of companies are pulling back on advertising. Um, we talked in a recent show about the New York Times, seeing that uh, they're getting a lot less advertising revenue, lots of other companies the same. That makes it cheaper for you to market, theoretically. Um, uh, the recession obviously is a concern, except that employment's really strong. And so that's probably good for you guys because people more often than not are covered by their, uh, their general insurance needs are covered by their employer. And so the supplemental needs might be uh, of more interest to them for your product. And that, it, that in an inflationary environment, the policies you write today for call it, you know, $500,000 in coverage down the line down the line, the inflation is going to, uh, to to reduce kind of your cost of having to deliver that. Yeah, it's, you know, the 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 interesting thing about Aflac and uh, and even our stock uh, is we're, we're viewed oftentimes as kind of a safety stock in the world of financial service stocks. And why is that? Because 
we tend to drive most of our profitability off of very granular morbidity risk, um, as opposed to being exposed to low for long interest rates uh, or exposed to equity market volatility. We even have relatively low asset leverage because the types of products we sell don't build enormous reserves. They build reserves, of course, but they're not at the size of, say, a retirement company or a traditional life insurance company would. So as a because result, because the, pay, the payouts are shorter term. Yeah, shorter term major insurance and, center. Yeah, that's right. And less of this long duration reserve build that takes place where you're building assets which means you're exposed to the capital markets, whether it be recessionary risk or what have you. So a lot of times, if you listen to analysts who talk about our stock relative to others in the life and health space, they'll say, well, Aflac's a fairly safe place to be if you are growing concerned about macroeconomic conditions. Um, and it's so, interesting. yeah, and, but what's really interesting is, so what's the bad story for a company that's a healthcare provider? Well, typically you would say a global pandemic. Uh, and of course, we just tested that thesis out. And interestingly, it does result in more claims as you would expect and as should be the case. I mean, after all, our value proposition is to pay claims, uh, not to not pay claims. And so uh, you, you, you should see that happen and expect that to happen. But what was interesting is what we didn't expect was that the other traditional and normal health needs would slow down. And so what we saw in the way right. of rising COVID-related claims, we saw drop in the way of routine uh, hospitalization issues or doctor or medical issues and certainly things like accidents and other things. And so we ended up with some movement in our claims cycle but it wasn't as devastating as you might think when you think of a pandemic and a morbidity company. Yeah, I guess and we've seen that from a lot of hospital operators as well, where they just, their facilities where people were avoiding the hospital and, uh, with, at That's all right. costs. And as you mentioned, a lot of fewer accidents if you aren't going to work and aren't on the road and aren't, you know, out in, right. in restaurants and less, yeah. whatever, whatever might be happening out there to cause people to uh, get into more trouble. Yeah. It wasn't happening. And it, it balanced itself out. Inflation, you know, our expenses are going to be higher uh, in, in like any other company during a period of, in, of inflation. But that same inflation drives a Federal Reserve um, uh, to uh, move on short term interest rates. And because we have a large floating rate book of investments, we generate more investment income. So what we lose in the way of elevated expenses, as any business would suffer in an inflationary environment, our business model, along with other insurance companies, by the way, tends to be rewarded in the form of uh, greater investment income during a rising rate period of time. Uh, and so there's some counterbalance there. On our business model, you're absolutely right. During an inflationary environment, one will need to protect themselves more, not less. And so you would suggest perhaps a higher level of demand uh, for coverage uh, if uh, the risk of inflation in healthcare is a greater risk to your out-of-pocket costs. However, because uh, our products are typically voluntarily sold, meaning people are paying for it, it's not being provided by your employer. Um, you also have people that have to balance groceries and gas uh, prices with affording the two cups of Starbucks coffee a week that it costs for our insurance. It's very inexpensive insurance to buy because it's supplemental, but at the same time, 
if I've seen rising uh, gas prices and rising grocery prices, I'm, I'm being more careful with where I spend my money. So you see a lot of countervailing winds uh, when it comes to macroeconomic conditions. Fortunately, there's as many headwinds as there are tailwinds with the business, and we end up remaining fairly stable in our financial yeah. So let's talk about the duck and let's talk about marketing costs sure. um, uh, across the insurance industry. Marketing um, is become and heck marketing with, you know, whether it's geckos or ducks or, yeah. or even the, even the yeah. generals, you know, there's yeah. the, 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 the animated characters for some reason have driven that industry in some interesting ways and for some interesting reasons that I don't want to get into, but yeah. your, your marketing expense uh, seems like it's a, a really important part of your business and probably an important lever because it's one you can c- control so easily. It is. I think um, what's interesting, Corey, is that uh, the terminology I use, kind of a boxing or wrestling terminology, we punch or wrestle above our weight class. And what I mean by that is our marketing costs, let's just call it our branding costs in the U.S. on any given year is right around $125 million, give or take. Uh, and in the Japan, a very similar number in dollar terms, about that same size. For a company that has our brand recognition, where nine out of 10 people in the US and nine out of 10 people in Japan recognize the Aflac brand and the duck, that is a very low level of branding expense. That is multiples lower than some of the other big names in the industry that you're familiar with, whether it's the Allstates or State Farms or Progressives, et cetera, uh, who are spending many multiples of that. And I think the reason that we have been effective in that way is the fact that we have over many, many years built up so much brand equity. Uh, The duck now is 21 years old. And so what's interesting is you tend to wanna think about what your spend is in any given year around branding. And certainly that can move the dial. But the other thing that moves the dial is having a strong brand image and consistently routinely investing in that brand and making an interesting uh, you know, type of approach to the branding each and every year with that money. So for example, just a few years ago, you, you'll, you'll see that if you really wanna see a lot of Aflac advertising in the US, you'll wake up Saturday morning and be a fan of college football. Uh, and why? Because you're gonna see our normal ads. Oh, no, enough of Nick Saban and Alabama. You got it, but you got still, it, yes. you got it. Um, well, so, I, so it's interesting to me, it sounds like you're, your measure isn't your cost of customer acquisition. Your measure is, can we achieve the brand recognition that we want and customers yeah. will follow, which is a very different metric than a typical that's MBA right. would say you need to it, follow. It, that's, that's right. And brand equity, you know, it, unfortunately, brand equity is not something that ends up on your balance sheet uh, that you, uh, you, you have as an asset that stares you in the face on your balance sheet. Uh, and oh, by the way, if you screw up as a company is something that's subject to impairment like other forms of goodwill asset. Um, but because of that, it can often get ignored. And what I'm saying is, hey, part of the reason we can get away with 100 to $150 million of brand spend yet have the awareness we have is only because we've been spending that amount of money for 20 years and with an iconic recognized brand, uh, meaning the duck and leveraging that. So what I always tell our marketing and branding people is as important as what you create each and every year and where you show it, stick with it, be consistent. If you're constantly changing or swinging or rethinking or reimagining your brand, 
while that may create short-term excitement, you're going to probably undermine the brand equity if you're constantly changing your look and feel. So find a good message, a consistent message. Go ahead and freshen it all the time, but stay consistent in how you deliver it. And that's why we always say, God bless the duck, because you won't see us moving away from the duck, no matter what the case. And negotiations go really well every year with the duck, by the way. Uh, I would imagine, yes. It doesn't doesn't fight back too much. I uh... Having my Cal Bears lose to the Oregon Ducks last week, and there's no there's no love of Ducks in the Johnson household this there week. But nonetheless, uh, Fred Crawford, much love for you. We appreciate your time. Fred Crawford is the Chief Operating Officer of Aflac in Georgia. Thanks for your time. I uh, really appreciate it, Corey. Thank you. All right, coming up next on the drill down, the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Aflac when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast on your smart speaker. Just ask your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast, and it'll play the Drill Down podcast. I mean, couldn't be any simpler. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Liked that Fred Crawford, interesting conversation. I love talking about insurance. That wasn't always true, but once it became a, a Berkshire shareholder, I don't give investment advice. I'm also not going to interview Berkshire on the show since I am a shareholder and because Warren Buffett hasn't been calling a lot. Uh, but uh, uh, I love I talking keep, about I insurance. keep knocking. I keep knocking, but Warren doesn't open. I have met him once. I was with uh, our old colleague, Betty Lou. Oh, him and Betty are very tight. He yeah. and Betty are very tight. And he's very, he's a very nice man. Really anyway, nice off topic. Off very topic by meeting me. But uh, Affleck, we have one number that tells us a whole lot that drilled on, but about Affleck. Yeah. Quack, quack. 25%. What is 25%? 25% of the people in Japan are covered by Affleck insurance. Really? Isn't that amazing? Huh. Yeah, you know, I, I did not realize the Japan connection with Affleck. Big numbers. Yeah. Uh, uh, big numbers for them uh, in, in with that Japanese business. I think it makes it complicated for um, the securities analysis aspect of understanding the stock, but... Just when thinking about the company, it is it is fascinating to to hear how that's you know a central part of what they do and how they think of their business all over the world. Absolutely. Um, and enjoy that for time with Fred Crawford too. Big big track and field fan that Fred Crawford. You he ran did, at he Iowa. Gave, he gave, big star. Uh, big bowling we fan too. While we weren't recording, he was giving your son some tips. Uh, also true. And he's a big fan of bowling. We won't get into that. <laughs> We're grateful for your time, dear listeners. We do appreciate it. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Ben Wilson's our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drilled On is a production of the Business Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.